This is Resonance 104.4 FM. Flipping marvellous. How are you doing? Tis I, Nicholas of Hennigan, coming at you once again on uh, not only on the on t- radio, but we're also, of course, uh, we're recording this visually, you lucky people. So you might be watching us on YouTube or, of course, on Bohemian Britain. Dot com uh, or on the Literary London podcast at, uh, oh, where are we? Uh, I don't know, London Literary Pub Crawl. It's all over the, we're everywhere, we're everywhere. Um, and uh, this week I am delighted to welcome someone who is just such a polymath, I think is probably one way of describing him, a massive talent, uh, and also, uh, uh, sir, he was my teacher. So I'm very, very, very respectful to him. So Julius Green, thank you. Do- uh, Dr. Julius Green now, of course. Thanks for coming in, Julius. We've got uh, an incredible, uh, well, loads to talk about, really. So, so you're a you're a, a theatre producer, one of the I fair to say one of the top theatre producers, certainly in the UK, and you're also an author of note now, uh, having written three books. One, perhaps not surprisingly, called How to Produce a West End Show. The other, slightly more uh, surprising, is Agatha Christie. A life in theatre. In fact, I'm showing the cover now. So if you're listening in stereo, you can you can see that. Um, and even more surprisingly, perhaps a book called Stars and Spies, co-written with Christopher Andrew. So let's just talk about. Can we talk about the day job for a bit, uh, Julius, as a yes, theatre producer? Yeah. So what, what what's your background, and and how did the producing start? Well, I I started producing because I wanted to be an actor and director and and nobody else would employ me. So I had to set up a company as a vehicle for my own work. Uh, We did a lot of work. I did the Edinburgh Festival Fringe a lot and London Fringe Theatres, which is a a great place to cut your teeth as a a producer and director. And um, after a while, I found that I was so busy uh, producing the work uh, that I didn't have time to direct it and act in it anymore. So I was quite happy to hand over those roles to other people. Uh, and I grew a little company and that became a bigger company. Uh, and then, you know, you, you as one grows, as one's work grows, you, you, the venues get bigger, uh, you employ more and more people, the company grows. Uh, and then um, uh, I was very lucky because I, um, I also got a job as a producer, which is quite rare, in fact. Uh, to be paid uh, to produce in the commercial sector um, with Bill Kenwright, who I'm sure everybody knows. Uh, I've been his producer on and off, I think it's fair to say, for 30 years now. Um, uh, I've, I've come and gone one or two times with the company, but better the devil you know at the end of the day. So uh, I, I enjoy producing shows for Bill um, in between the times when I'm not producing my own work. And it's, I mean, Bill Kenwright's had some massive shows, perhaps what well, Blood Brothers is certainly one. I know that I yeah. tweeted something and there was a, a little storm around people on Twitter that support Blood Brothers. Um, yeah. But you've, you've done all sorts. I always remember as well, we were in Edinburgh at the Edinburgh Festival and there was a show called Saucy Jack and the Space Vixens, which I yeah. think you picked up on and you brought to London and kind of built a pub to put it in or something. Yeah, well, uh, um, me and my then business partner, Ian Renigan, uh, produced uh, Saucy Jack and the Space Vixens, which we picked up from the Edinburgh Fringe and developed. Uh, we took it into the West End uh, and uh, we bought a nightclub for it. So it was a sort of immersive theatre event long before that became cool and trendy. Uh, so it was an uh, interactive nightclub uh, intergalactic uh, space experience. Experience, which went down very well. It ran for a couple of years, was, was very successful. It's now performed all over the world. And it's funny you should mention Blood Brothers because uh, just last week uh, we launched 
uh, the nine millionth UK tour of Blood Brothers, uh, well, something like that, and um, <laughs> with a new cast. Um, uh, and in fact, we 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 staged it last uh, last autumn as well, immediately after lock, uh, all that lockdown nonsense finished. Uh, so Blood Brothers is still going strong, still on tour, and has a lovely new cast at the moment. Uh, just playing at the Theatre Royal Windsor. So my day job, I was putting that together last week. Funny you should mention it. <laughs> it's, I mean, a lot of people remember that the Phoenix Theatre in, in London West End. It was there for, for a long, a long, long time, wasn't it? And yes. What about your your what about the educational background, the academic background? Now that you're a doctor, because you weren't when I knew you. You yeah, were just well, sir. Uh, yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> I I completed my PhD on the plays of Agatha Christie at uh, Goldsmiths. So. Um, that was based on a lot of the research that I did for the book, uh, Agatha Christie, A Life in Theatre. Uh, and I, um, yeah, I just decided it was time to, to get my PhD. So uh, I, yeah, I cashed in a lot of work that I'd done, a lot of research, uh, wrote a little thesis and, um, and very much enjoyed being taught by the head of history at Goldsmiths and uh, had a great time. And, and now I've got a PhD, so it's great. Well done. Very jealous. I mean, and so Agatha Christie, where, where did your interest first, where was your interest first peaked, as it were, by Agatha Christie? Because you also did stuff with Ken Wrights, didn't you, and the Agatha Christie Theatre Company? Well, I, uh, my first uh, experience with Agatha Christie was uh, when my own company was running a little theatre called the Palace Theatre in Westcliff, uh, and we couldn't sell tickets for anything. Nobody would come to anything, but uh, one day a touring production of Agatha Christie's The Unexpected Guest turned up. And we sold every ticket. And I was like, I better have a look at this and see what, see what this is all about. So I stood at the back with our artistic director, Roy Marsden. We looked at this rather second rate production of The Unexpected Guest. Uh, I apologize if you were in it, <laughs> anyone who's listening. Uh, and, uh, but the audience just loved it. And I thought, this is really interesting because I didn't realize as a, as a theater producer that Agatha Christie had this string to her bow. Obviously I knew about the mousetrap. Um, so I was, I said to on, Roy and I on the way back uh, to London in the car said, why don't we do a little season of Agatha Christie plays? Uh, and then, you know, by the time we got home, we, we said, why don't we do every play that Agatha Christie ever wrote as a season? That'd be quite a, a selling point. Um, so I researched it the next day and discovered that at that point in time, um, there were a, about 25 uh, plays that, we knew that she'd penned, including one-act plays and rarities and unperformed ones. And we worked with Agatha Christie's estate and put together a 12-week festival, which became known as the Agathon, uh, <laughs> where we did 12 weeks of all of Agatha Christie's plays, as then known, um, in the main house in the studio at the Palace Westcliff, uh, on, in daily rep. Imagine that with a company of 23 actors. So um, it was great fun. And people literally came from all over the world and we did sell every ticket. And interestingly, we got one performance of the mousetrap because we couldn't obviously couldn't get a license for the mousetrap. Uh, but Stephen Whaley Cohen, the, uh, who was then producing it, very kindly allowed one performance of the London production to come to Westcliff, where they performed on a sort of composite set. And of course, it was the biggest audience the Mousetrap had played to in this country uh, since it first opened in 1952, because the capacity at Westcliff was in fact bigger uh, than their West End theatre. Oh, how marvellous, yeah. I mean, because how, how long has it been running in the West End for those that have been asleep? Oh, uh, it's been running since 1952, if you can work that out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's over 60 Blair years. I yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Maths is a struggle. Yeah, no, 60-something. Well, yeah. I know. I feel quite old because I think the first time I saw that sign, it said 40th year. But anyway. Yeah, I'll no. Yeah. I won't get it. That's one of the iconic signs of London, <clears throat> the, the number of years the mouse rat has run. Yeah. <laughs> and so and how did that... So presumably, you'd obviously, from the theatrical point of view, enjoyed a great relationship with her and her works. How did actually the book come around? Is it is it because of your the success of your first book about producing uh, a West End show? What was the story of it? Well, after... Uh, when I came back to Bill's, uh, we set up something called the Agatha Christie Theatre Company, which had the exclusive touring rights to Agatha Christie's plays in the UK. And we ran that for 10 years. Uh, and then um, I was invited to write an introduction uh, to the 60th anniversary edition of The Mousetrap and other plays, which HarperCollins published. Uh, and I did a bit of research for that. Uh, and I discovered a, a lot of interesting material that people didn't know about Agatha Christie as a playwright. So after writing that introduction, uh, I suggested that maybe the time was right for someone to write a book about Agatha Christie as a playwright, because what people don't realise these days is that Agatha Christie is uh, indisputably the most successful female playwright of all time. Uh, she's the only woman ever to have had three plays in the West End at the same time, and the, the record-breaking uh, run of the mousetrap, quite apart from that, uh, you know, she wrote Witness for the Prosecution, uh, so many other household name plays. And people don't really give her the credit these days uh, for writing the plays that she did. People assume that the plays are adaptations of her work by other people, uh, as they often see on television. And confusingly, uh, during her own lifetime, there were plays adapted from her books by other people. So I think this is where the confusion has possibly arisen. And some of those adaptations were not very good, uh, whereas her work as a playwright, generally speaking, is first rate. Did you ever actually meet her? I'm trying to figure out when she departed, <clears throat> Agatha Christie. Did you meet her in the flesh or had she... I didn't meet her in the flesh, but I worked very uh, closely with her grandson, Matthew, um, who was a great source of information and gave me uh, access to the uh, family archive and all, all of unpu the unpublished play scripts that they had uh, stored there. I also found other unpublished work in America uh, so there's quite a lot of exclusive material in my book, uh, which is why it's a mere 500 pages long. Yes, this is the, this is the soft copy, the, the, the mm. paperback copy, which and if you're watching again in stereo, you'll be able to yeah, see this, yeah. or if not, catch us on, on bohemianbritain.com. Um, and I quite like Act 1, you've call, you called Act 1 the people's playwright. Mm. Um, and I, I love there's a quote in here where she said, because everyone knows her for her books as well. I mean, we know her for The Mousetrap, but also, we, you know, we sort of know her for her books. But there's a lovely quote that you found somewhere that she says, I kind of prefer writing plays almost. Oh, yeah, no. She was on, she's on the record quite regularly as saying that, you know, she preferred writing plays to writing books. She very much, I have to be careful about this when I'm at Agatha Christie conferences and festivals and things. But actually, you know, she saw writing books as her day job and a way of making money uh, and, and paying the bills and paying her tax bill. Um, and um, stage writing, uh, playwriting was her real pleasure and her real ambition in life. The proudest moment of her life was the opening night of Witness for the Prosecution in uh, 1953, where... Um, where you know there was a massive standing ovation and uh, and and, and she, she, it was the happiest night of her life. She said.
Oh, what a lovely story. And of course, witness for the prosecution, I think he's currently in London at County Hall. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Just yeah, by yeah. a friend. Yeah, that's yeah. sort of doing good business as well. What What do you think was the secret to Agatha Christie? What, what was it? What did she got that made her so successful? Well, I call it, I, I say she was the people's playwright. Um, and um, that's the that's part one. And I think she has, you know, readers of her books um, and viewers of her plays find a connection that she she does speak directly to people. And, and, and particularly in, in her, the period of her great success as, as a playwright was in the 1950s. Uh, never mind John Osborne, you know, what people were really going to see was Agatha Christie. Uh, she had huge successes when she had three plays in the West End at the same time. And she really connected uh, with the post-war zeitgeist, not in an obvious way, but in a sort of subtle, a psychological way, uh, she addressed people's apprehensions and fears about the brave new world that they were living in. Uh, as I say, not obviously, but through subtext and you know sub subliminal connections. And do you do you have? I've got to ask really. Do you have a favourite play? Is uh, that uh, you know, having read? Her yeah, witness. Uh, <clears throat> witness for the prosecution is is the best courtroom drama of all time. Uh, often imitated but never bettered, uh, and um, I suppose I mean there's a there's, there's some of the rarer plays are very very good. Um, there's one called A Daughter's a Daughter, which was under the pen name Mary Westmacott, which uh, Bill Kenwright um, produced the West End premiere of um, not long ago at the Trafalgar Studios. Um, so yeah, I mean, she, she, she wrote a wide variety of plays, not just detective stories, but domestic dramas as well. Comedies, one act plays. Uh, she really experimented with genre. There's a wonderful play called Verdict, which was a huge flop in the West End, only ran for a few weeks, but uh, was one of her favorites. Wow, yes, I remember A Daughter's A Daughter. I saw it, actually. My friend Annie Wen was in it. <laughs> it was yes, rather indeed. <laughs> I'm Nick Hennigan, talking to Julius Green. This is Resonance 104.4 FM. Flipping marvellous. We're also, as I say, on bohemianbritain.com. A Bohemian Brit, by the way, it's a bit of a joke. This, this podcast has been voted the number two Bohemian podcast to follow in the world by a company called Feedspot. And I suddenly thought, what's a successful Bohemian? Does it mean you eat two tins of beans in your garret while you're trying to create something? Anyway, so bohemianbritain.com, uh, also on YouTube. We're talking to Julius Green, um, producer, author, and all-round talent, really, <coughs> excuse me, about his three books. Uh, I suppose the Agatha Christie one is, is, is a delight, actually. I mean, it's a real entertaining read as well. And it feels, if you don't mind me saying, you, I, I get the impression, it's a straight, obvious, I get the impression you really like her, though. There's a lot of warmth in what could be yeah. a very technical book. Yeah, no, her character shines through, and I think I think her character, as I said, shines through probably more in uh, her personality, shines through more in her playwriting than in her novels, uh, because she invested very personally in her playwriting. And there's some really I extremely interesting work that wasn't even published or performed, which I uh, um, uh, was allowed to quote from and publish extracts from so the only only place you can see this material is is in this book which is which has been a great privilege and you know was an honor that i was given uh, by matthew and family which is lovely so uh, you know plug for the book the only way you can read some of agatha christie's unpublished material is in extract form in it and there's a wonderful correspondence in the middle of the book 
uh, with her producer, Peter Saunders, who was the mousetrap man. He was the producer of the mousetrap and all of her work after that. Um, and he persuaded her to write uh, Witness for the Prosecution as a, as a stage play. She'd originally written a very short story, uh, which she adapted. Uh, and she was uh, in the Middle East with her husband, the archeologist, Max Mallowan, uh, and Peter Saunders and her were exchanging correspondence about casting and finishing off the script and all of that stuff. And, and the correspondence was so witty and interesting and informative and good that I just stopped my own narrative for literally 30 pages and just published their letters because they do it a lot better than I possibly could. Brilliant. And, and was it, so what, what gave, gave birth, as it were, to your current book or your latest book, Stars and Spies? And again, it's another book that kind of makes sense if you think about it, the, the idea of espionage and, um, you know, pretending to be something that you're not um, kind of makes sense. But what was the genesis of that idea? Well, it's that thing of you've, you've got your, you know, we published the uh, Agatha Christie book and then the paperback came out, it came out in America and you twiddle your thumbs and go, what next? Uh, I mean, I'm not twiddling my thumbs as a producer because I'm working 24-7 as a producer, but that part of my brain's going, I want to write something else now. And I actually, I actually approached it, um, I would say to my... Uh, Producing students, as I think you know, you know, you don't start from the idea of what's going to sell tickets. You start from the idea of what do I want to write. But actually, in this case of this book, I started, I broke my own rules and thought, what do people want to read about? Well, you know, they want to read about stars. And interestingly, they also want to read about spies. And I was living in Cambridge at the time because I did my research for the Alan Lucy book, uh, Cambridge um, uh, University. Um, and um, I, I was part of a group which was an espionage seminar, uh, intelligence seminar, uh, intelligence in the sense of intelligence rather than intelligent. Um, <laughs> and we met every week to discuss uh, behind the scenes um, spying and espionage material academically. And this was led by an extraordinary chap called Professor Christopher Andrew, who is uh, one of the most prolific and respected authors of um, espionage and intelligence books, history books, very academic, highly respected. Um, and um, I, uh, I was coming up with this idea for a book about espionage and show business. And I wrote to him and said, um, you know, I'm looking for a collaborator. Could you suggest someone from the seminar who could do the espionage, help me with the espionage because uh, that you know, that's not my strong suit. I'll I'll do the showbiz bit, and some one of the people from the seminar could do. And I was expecting him to recommend a PhD student or something that I could work alongside. And he actually wrote back and said, "This is such a good idea. I'll I'll be your co-author on this." So um, great privilege. So uh, oddly, uh, well, not oddly, but interestingly, Chris taught me history all those years ago when I was a, a student at Cambridge studying history. Uh, so um, we collaborated. Uh, and um, and produce this book. So um, I, I input on the um, showbiz side, he, uh, he input on the espionage side. But actually what we found was we all got so interested in each other's part of, this, of the subject that we both, I mean, Chris made some very interesting showbiz discoveries and I think I made some quite interesting espionage discoveries. So we wove it all together 
Um, and uh, there's the result. We published it in the same week as the James Bond film came out, which was probably you know, fortuitous or might have been part of the publicity department's very clever plan, I suspect. Uh, but yeah, there's a lot of lovely stories in it about actors who were also spies. Uh, and oddly, there's quite a lot of spies who have uh, showbiz aspirations as well. But of course, it's very odd because uh, there's a lot of crossover, as you say, um, Nick, because it's all about uh, role play, disguise, pretending to be somebody you're not, following a script. Uh, you know, an undercover agent is, is effectively uh, engaging in a piece of long form role play of a quite extraordinary sort. And people uh, have false identities and, uh, and it's very much the same psychology, which means that the, the, the roles have quite a lot of symbiosis all the way through history. So, you know, you think about Christopher Marlowe, for instance, who spy, Matahari, Noel Coward, you know, and, and so it goes on. And we found literally hundreds of examples where we could talk about the crossover. Now, it's, you know, it's, it's light entertainment. The book is, you know, the book is academically diligent uh, and it has to be because we're both academics as well, but it's also supposed to be a bit of fun and, it, you know, the thesis is is a is a piece of fun to hang a book on about both subjects, but they do go together very well, and it, you know it gives us an opportunity to talk about all kinds of very interesting eccentric people. <laughs> yeah, I mean it does. I mean, Cambridge is quite well known itself for spies at one point, wasn't it? I Indeed, think. yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I love the fact, and it literally does cover from you've gone right back to the Elizabethan age. So, who was your first spy? Would that have been? Christopher Marlowe, would it have been? Well, we, we, I mean, the main, the, the main section of the book starts with the Elizabethan age, uh, because that was, you know, the heyday of, of, of both theatre and espionage in, 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 that was the first time both really flourished. And the, the fact that they flourished at the same time in this country cannot have been a coincidence. But actually, we trace it right back to ancient India, where, you know, um, court entertainers, uh, court jesters, uh, dancers, all the way through history have been used to spy on people. Because, uh, you know, when you think about it in medieval times as well, the court jester at the, at the table of the mighty, uh, people keep talking while the jester's going around, but, you know, like the cab driver, uh, the court jester overhears everything. So of course he's going to then report back to the boss everything he's heard while he's been entertaining people. And Noel so, Coward, that, that was presumably Second World War E plus Noel yeah, Coward. Yeah. Yeah, Noel Coward was uh used as what they call an agent of influence uh in America to, to try and help persuade the Americans join the war effort. And uh, you know, again, he 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 hid in plain sight. You know, you can't Noel Coward can't pretend to be somebody else. <laughs> but um but because of who he was, of course, he's he's rubbing shoulders with the great and the good. He, he got asked, invited twice to dine at the White House at a time when, you know, political issues between the UK and, and America were very important. So he was able and he gathered information about industrialists, uh, politicians and uh, and reported back, you know, and I've read some of his reports, which are in Noel Coward archive. And that's what he was doing, you know, but he wasn't. You know, he wasn't in disguise. He was going as Noel Coward. And because he was Noel Coward, everybody talked to him about everything, you know, which they really? wouldn't if he'd been a politician or a soldier. 
Yeah, of course, absolutely. And uh, and and the third book that you're known for, of course, perhaps, is How to Produce a West End Show. As a massively successful West End and elsewhere producer, um, I guess was that a kind of a logical step? I mean, I know personally that there was no no training, no help, no books, no nothing when I started to slip into theatre producing. So was it a reaction to what you were seeing, or did you just think it was about time someone should do something? Well, it was, yeah, I mean, again, that was my first book uh, back in, I can't remember, 2012, I think. Uh, And um, uh, yes, I, 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 my friend James Hogan, who run the publishing company Oberon, which was at that time a leading uh, boutique, uh, leading theatre publisher, that's now been uh, bought out uh, by Matthew in Drama. Uh, so Matthew, it's now the book's now published by Matthew. Um, and I was talking to him and I just said, I would like to write a book about what I do for a living. Uh, and he was like, great, that sounds like a good idea. Let's publish it. And, and we had a bit of a debate about the title because his editor thought it should be called How to Produce a Play because they thought that would be more accessible to people. And I said, no, 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 no. You know, call it How to Produce a West End Show because that's, you know, if you, if you want to, if you want to, you know, sell a book about cars, you write about, you say, how to be a Formula One racing driver, you know, not how to drive a Mini. Uh, <laughs> and that's the that's the book that people are going to buy. But, I mean, hopefully uh, in the book gives you all sorts of, it's not, you've read it, and it you know, it's a bit tongue-in-cheek as well. And there's quite a lot of thinly disguised real people in it <laughs> and real companies uh, and all the shenanigans that they get up to. So it's a bit of fun, really, but but also, and I, I keep it entirely free of graphs, budgets and everything else. I deliberately don't have an index so people can't look up the bit they're interested in. They have to read the whole thing, which is a narrative, really, about the process. It's a story about... Uh, about putting on a West End show, you know, and then the last chap, every every chapter is called how to cast a West End show, how to work with directors, how to publicise a West End show, and the final chapter is called how to close a West End show, you know, because closing a West End show is is a process in itself. But I'm just talking to Matthew and now about writing a new edition uh, with with an extra chapter at the end called how to produce a West End show in a global pandemic. So that, that's <laughs> the third edition, uh, which Watch This Space should be out quite soon. Oh, that could be. I could. We could talk for hours and hours. It's a shame, but we've run out of time again. Uh, but uh, I say again, do you have to come back? We'll have to do like one per book or something. Yeah, yeah have to do that. Um, so... Uh, Thank you so much, Dr. Julius. I can't get used to saying that, sir. Oh, no, it's, great. it's lovely. Yeah, it's really good. Really. Um, Julius Green, uh, theatre producer and writer, uh, stars and splash. Oh, I must just ask you before we go do you have a process? Because I know I'll get emails about this. I mean, do you use a particular writing software or do you write in the morning? No, I just, I just use Word and I get on with it. And, uh, you know, I, I mean, I. I hadn't discovered foot, how to do proper footnotes until the stars and spies when, when I was surrounded by academics. So, you know, when I did all the footnotes for the Agatha Christie book, I was, I don't know what I was doing. I didn't have the footnotes software. So I did have to do it all myself um, and write it in, in pencil. But um, no, what I do is I do epic sessions of work. So I will, I will, I will get up at seven o'clock and work from seven till seven and just make one cup of coffee and you know that's it just get down to it and get on with it and um and i schedule these i mean a a lot of what i do is research 
Um, and I prefer the research to the actual writing. You know, the writing is physically repetitive and, you know, it's there's a lot of angst about, have I used the same word twice in three sentences and all that stuff. Um, I like, you know, it's fine. I, I, I write in a conversational style, which uh, slightly in, in, uh, annoys my academic friends, but I think readers find it more interesting. But I, I, I won't do two hours and then go for a walk. I'll just sit at a desk, sit with the screen, get on with it, punch out the words and watch the word count going up in the corner of the screen. I mean, I mean, the, the, the Christie book was three times as long as the book they actually commissioned, but they very kindly um, didn't force me to cut it back because I think they found it interesting. Oh, brilliant. Well, this has been interesting as well and fascinating. Thank you very much, Julius. Uh, he's got three books, Stars and Spies, Agatha Christie, A Life in the Theatre, which again, I'm holding up here for you if you're listening in stereo, and How to Produce a West End Show. Julius Green, thank you so much for coming in and chatting. Uh, that's it. That's all we've got time for. Thank you for joining me. As always, if you want to get in touch, probably easiest to email radio at mavericktheatre.com co.uk radio at mavericktheatre.co.uk um, i'll see you next time i'm nick hennigan this is literary london on residence 104.4 fm <laughs>